Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Echo Global Missions Conference is coming up in a hurry. How many of you have been before? All right. That was three, it looked like. Um, how many of you have been before to Echo Global Mission? All right. For us at Church on the Rock, it's like Christmas in October um, because all of our missionaries, many of our missionaries come in. I think we've got 20-something that are showing up here. They've got their plane tickets. They're ready to go. We've got merch already ordered, but four days of celebrating and encouraging our missionaries, what God has been doing with them and through them around the world. And so um, I encourage you to be asking God how he would want you to partner with what they're doing all over the planet. And so uh, Kelly and Lenora Break are back this year with us. They're going to be here. So I'm, I'm just telling you, it's time to get fired up. Um, now, you, you're going to want to be able to give when our missionaries show up, which probably means for most of us, you've already spent all of your dividend money. Um, so you're going to need to return some items. Um, I'm just kidding. You, you do whatever you do. All right. Um, I just got back. I've been gone for, um, it feels like a long time, uh, but for a couple of weeks, uh, went out moose camping, and then um, we, went from, we went from there um, to our staff retreat. I made a run down to Homer, um, grabbed our camper and brought it back, um, and then we just got back yesterday from our Church on the Rock staff retreat, our annual staff retreat, and it's just a great time, absolutely great time. Um, and then here we are today, ready to go. Uh, but here's what is always just super encouraging to me when, I, when I'm gone and I return, is um, I have staff members who are just brutally honest. Uh, and I'm not going to name names, but Kim Sliwa, um, uh, I got back, and the first thing that she said to me when she saw me at staff retreat, she said, man, the past couple of Sundays have been some of the best Sundays ever which I translated as, while you were gone, things were finally the way they should be around. And, uh, and so I just thought, you know, that's why I leave, is so that you guys can have good Sundays every now and then. Um, so there, there, thanks for that, Kim. I knew we hired you for a reason. Um, no, it actually, for me as a pastor, is super encouraging um, that uh, God is moving, he's working, that he's got the right team in place, and that um, things are still moving forward. We're experiencing the presence of God even um, when some of us are absent from time to time. So that actually is a real encouragement. Also, another thing that's an encouragement to me, and I didn't tell him I was going to call him out, and uh, I'm not exactly sure where in the room he is, but I saw um, that Nick Begich is here. Nick, where is he? He's right there. He's right there. Um, now, um, here's why I'm excited. Not because he's running, for, I'm excited about that too, um, but because his home church is ACF in Eagle River uh, and Pastor Brian. And Pastor Brian's been on a sabbatical and he's just now getting back, but I'm going to text Pastor Brian here in just a little bit and let him know while he was gone, people were leaving his church and coming to Church on the Rock. Um, so 
There we go. It's a huge win. Hey, welcome. Anyways, you ready? We're going to jump in. Um, it's a mini-series, three weeks. Over the next three weeks, um, we're going to be um, looking at this issue of contentment and discontent. And specifically, is there a time for a holy discontent? And my title today is, um, I Can't Get No. There you go. Yeah, I, I didn't add that part in. I just am doing that. I Can't Get No is my title. So, uh, but speaking of satisfaction... Um, uh, we live in a world, and you probably know this already, especially um, when dividends are about to come out every year, like the advertising budget for every company in the state goes up exponentially because they have the greatest deal you can ever imagine. And what you really need to know is that your old stuff is not good anymore. It doesn't matter if you just bought it last month. The new model is out now. Um, and so, but it's this, our culture is driven towards um, playing on our discontent, our natural tendency towards it. And so everything around us um, yells out, don't you know you're missing out on something? Right? I, that four-wheeler that you bought last year, there's a new model out this year, and it has heat. Um, and you should really get the new model or, or that car that you just recently, the new car's out, or that iPhone that you just bought, iPhone 97 is out now, and it's so different. Instead of three little cameras on the back, it has four. Only two of them actually do something, but it's more, and you need more. Like, whatever, the be- whatever you have is not enough. It's everything in our culture. It's all driven in that direction. It plays on this discontent that we are naturally bent towards. It's, whether it's cars or homes or clothes or phones or computers, it's, it's happening all the time. Relationships, sexuality, they're crying out, you're missing out on something because of your old prudish ideas or your values. Or you're missing out on something. You need to try these things. But it's actually playing on our natural bent towards being dissatisfied with what we currently have. And this is compounded by the media age that we live in and the affluence that we live in as a nation because often we can take advantage of the new opportunities. Now, statistically, and you could Google this for yourself because everything you find on Google is true. Um, Statistically, and and the research backs this up significantly, um, the more you have, the less satisfied you're prone to be. It's interesting, when you ask um, uh, people, um, how much more would you need in your retirement? How, how much more would you need in your annual income to be satisfied? It's actually true if you ask pastors, pastors who want to plant churches. Like, we need to get involved in what God's doing in the world. We need to plant another campus or a church. And if you ask them, um, how much more money do you need before you can do that? Or how many more people do you need before you feel like you can do that? Um, the answer is always in the same bracket 20% more. Now, here's what's interesting. You could grow by 20%, and you could ask the question again, and the answer is still 20% more. Because we have this hard wiring towards wanting more, being dissatisfied with what we actually have. And here's what's interesting. The scriptures actually speak a lot about this issue of contentment. In fact, they're really explicit in their instruction about it. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says this, Don't love money. Be satisfied with what you have. 
I, I want to pause there for a moment. I, I don't know if you're like me, but I read that verse and I read the first part. I'm like, don't love money. And I'm like, that's right. I don't love money. I just want you to know that. I don't love money. I, I've never been like, I heart you money and nothing. Like, I don't love money. But then you read the second half of it, um, be satisfied with what you have. And all of a sudden I'm like, run, run, raggy. Like this, something's wrong in my heart because I find it very difficult to be satisfied with what I have. I find it easy to sort of excuse myself. I don't love money because that would be just terrible, but, but I am not satisfied with what I have. Here's what he says. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. Like, like the pathway to contentment is this realization that you've already been given everything in Christ. Like, like he will never abandon you. He will never leave you. There's actually something that should bring a sense of satisfaction in our life. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10 is another one. For the sake of Christ, I, Paul, am content with, listen to the list, weakness, insults, hardship, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Or this one, it's really direct, Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I find myself. I know both how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need, I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. That's like the number one verse in Christian school locker rooms, right? Like, I can lift this 475 because I can do all things through Christ. That's not what the verse is about at all. It's like suffering, persecution, having a lot, having a little. Like, I've just learned the art of being content in any circumstance. You know why? Because of Christ. Christ in me, that, that's how I've discovered how to be content. We treat it as a verse that tells us we can have power to get more, to win, to lift more, to win more, to, but, but it's actually in the context of contentment. I want to make two observations from these passages about contentment. The first one is this. Contentment is commanded. It isn't a suggestion in the scriptures, which like elevates it a little bit, um, hopefully, for you. It does for me. Contentment isn't like, this is a really good idea. I think you should consider being content. No, no, it's actually commanded. Contentment is commanded. And here's the other piece of that. Um, not only that, but it um, encompasses more than just our stuff. It actually encompasses our circumstances. Like, what would it look like to learn to be content in any and every circumstance? Those things that are outside of your control, but you find yourself in this situation. I can tell you the time I most vividly saw this portrayed, it was um, with uh, um, Richard Warmbrandt, the founder of Voice of the Martyrs. And he was, um, for the first time, with his son and a camera crew, returning to the prison in Romania where he had been held and tortured. If you've ever read the book Tortured for Christ, I mean, it is brutal. And he finds himself back there, and they're touring this prison, and he's describing what's happened in the book. He's describing the places and the events in the prison, and he gets to his old cell, this tiny little, I believe it was six by six cell that they held him in in isolation. And he's standing in there, and he puts out his arms like this, and tears are just streaming down his face, and he spins around, and he says, right here 
in this room, I had some of the most precious moments with Jesus ever. Like, like right here, my soul was satisfied in the middle of hell on earth. Right? Like contentment goes beyond our stuff. Paul is describing this ability. But, but here's the other thing that's interesting to me. He says, I've learned how to be content to make do with little and with much, which I don't think I ever think about it in those terms. Like, whew, I got a lot of stuff. I better learn how to be content. Like, I got lots of money. I better learn how to be content with having a lot of money. But, but what he's identifying is it's actually often more of a challenge to be content when you have abundance than it is when you have little. Both of them require this work of the Lord in us. The second observation is this. The first one is that contentment is commanded, not suggested. And the second one is this. Contentment can actually be cultivated. In fact, he says twice in the passage, I have learned like I've developed the skill, I've discovered some things, but I've actually grown in my capacity to be content. I've learned how to be content in each and every circumstance, which gives me a ton of hope. Like how many of you would say, I feel like I'm content in each and every circumstance and with all my stuff in life? Go ahead, lie, I dare you. No, I'm just kidding, uh, you, you may be. Um, but what I've discovered is actually an ongoing process in my life, and it's able to be developed. So if contentment is commanded and it can be cultivated, then why in the world is it so difficult to live in? Why, why is it such a challenge? I think it's actually rooted in one word. It's this word, more. Like, if I just had more, and this idea of more can actually, um, it can be by looking at other people's stuff and they have more, I wish I had more. Or it could be looking at your own stuff and just not being satisfied with what you have and wishing that you had more. But we're hardwired, it seems, to want more. In fact, in James chapter four, verses one through three, the question is asked, what is the cause of quarrels and fights among you? It's a question I ask my girls all the time. And I'm like, what do you think the root of this is? It's Satan, that's what, no, it, Here's what he says. What is the cause of quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. I just want to pause there for a second because I think there's um, actually two reasons that we often don't ask God for it. One of them is, we already know his answer. Like, God, I want that guy's wife. He's like, uh, that's going to be a no, right? Like, uh, there are things that we want that we just inherently know are not right, right? They're, they're evil, but there are also things that we want and we sense that our motivation for them is not right. And what we know is that he knows that about us, right? So he goes on and he says this, and even when you ask, you don't get it because your motivations are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. Where did these fights and quarrels come from? It is, actually it doesn't matter whether it's on a national scale and we go to war because they aren't, they're not going to give us the price that we want. For So we'll just take it. Might makes right. And it also works out in our own homes, in the workplace, at school. Like you see these things flesh themselves out in this craving for more, this 
dissatisfaction. Now, now, here's something interesting. I hear people talk about the early church frequently, like, I wish we were like the early church. The early church was so great. They were so perfect. They had it all together. They were meeting in homes, not in buildings. They weren't organized like we're organized because organization is evil. I don't know if you know that. Um, but, but here's what happens. In the early church, it grows rapidly. Like, right out of the gate, the early church begins to grow, and they realize, we got to get some things organized, right? Uh, there, there's an issue of integrity. And so in the early church, they make it an entire six chapters in the book of Acts before they have their first major blowout. That's how far the early church gets. Uh, so here, here it is. It's in Acts chapter six, verse one. But as the believers rapidly multiplied, there were rumblings of discontent. The Greek speaking believers complained about the Hebrew speaking believers saying that their widows were being discriminated against in the daily distribution of food. Now, we're not actually told whether this is true or not. We're just told that the apostles appoint some people to look into it, to make sure that it's happening in an equitable fashion. But here's what struck me as I was reading through this passage and dealing with the issue of discontent, that there's only one way you would actually know if they had more than you, and that's if you're looking at what they have, right? Like, you look at your plate, and then you look at their plate, and you're like, they got more, which is what my kids say every time when it's something they want. They never say it when it's broccoli, right? Or, or like, but when it's something they want, like, I think they got more than I And the only way you would know that is if you were actually spending your time looking at what they had and comparing it to what you have, which, which brings me to the great gumball caper of Westminster Walk, which is the neighborhood I live in. Recently, we had a birthday party. Um, we had a pinata at the birthday party. Um, it was a weird pinata. It was a cat. Uh, it was a unicorn cat pinata. I don't even know where my wife found it, um, but it was extraordinary. Um, it, which, for me personally, like, let me swing at the cat. I, that sounds awesome. Uh, but um, it was it was filled with gumballs, and and so it took a, an insane amount of time for them to finally, you know, bust it open. When they busted it open, like gumballs went everywhere. And, uh, and so the kids, the dogs, like the birds, everything's scrapping for the gumballs, putting them in little baggies. And, um, and one of my girls, um, she, she ended up acquiring, if I, if I got it right, 114 gumballs. <laughs> 114. She counted them that night. It was a rainy night. She counted them, set them on the table, and went to bed in Westminster Walk. And the next morning, she got up and she ended up counting them again. Initially, she believed that 20 gumballs were missing. She remembered then that she had put some in another bag in her purse, and it turns out that 14 gumballs were missing. And suddenly in our house, we have a whodunit. She made this poster, stuck it on the wall. It was, it's been there for like weeks now. <laughs> she stuck it on the wall. It says... As you can see, 14 gumballs lost. Big question mark. Have you seen them? Take one card if you have seen one or more. <laughs> we have no idea who took the two cards. Like, <laughs> but clearly somebody knows where at least two of the gumballs are, and I'm guessing they were in their stomach or something. Like, I mean... It's a mystery, but, but here's what I've, I've realized, and I think we all do this. Um, the reason she counted the gumballs the night before, and then she counted them again the next day is, well, because she has sisters, <laughs> and she knows me, and she wanted to make sure they were all still there, because you actually, you count the things that you care about, that you measure the things that matter to you. 
And this was a big deal to her. And what I've realized is we all sort of do this. If you were to look at your life and you were to say, what are the things I keep track of? What are the things that I measure? What are the things that I really care about? It would be revealed to you, which brings me to U-Hauls and hearse. You've heard it said before. I think Denzel Washington made it famous. You've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul, right? There's some pictures of it. It looks super weird when you see it. Like, that's either a very large casket <laughs> or they have him in there. Um, like, but but you not taking anything with you, right, when you leave is the general idea. In fact, it's exactly what the scriptures say. It's what Paul writes to this young preacher, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. Listen to what he says. Yet true godliness with contentment in itself is great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. It's a principle, you've probably heard it at some point if you've been in church much at all, but this idea that you brought nothing into the world, you can't take anything out of the world, so what are you doing with the stuff that you have? How are you investing it for kingdom purposes? Your possessions and your talent and your money, all of it, like what does it look like to, to use it and the only place you actually can use it. You can't take anything with you when you go. You didn't bring anything in, and you can't take anything out, but, but you actually can send some things ahead. You can actually make some investments in advance that will meet you there. In fact, it's exactly what Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 12, verse 33 and 34. Sell your possessions and Give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it and no moth can destroy it. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will be also. I want to draw a couple of things out of this. The first one is, generosity is actually an investment with guaranteed returns. Generosity, generous living, not just money, right? But generous living is actually an investment with guaranteed returns. Here's the other piece. And contentment is the key that unlocks generosity. Contentment. I'm okay. I'm satisfied with what I have. I'm not giving in to the demand of culture or the demand of my own ambition for more and more and more. I'm satisfied. I'm content. And from that place, I can begin to ask an entirely different set of questions about how I live my life and how I utilize the resources God has put in my possession. Generosity is an investment with guaranteed returns and contentment is the key to generous living. And the second thing is this, that my interests follow my investments, not the other way around. My interests follow my investments. I'm a little bit of a late bloomer when it comes to stocks and investments and those kinds of things, primarily because I've never had any money to invest in them. Uh, but, but I started doing so not too long ago, which you can tell my timing is impeccable, um, because they've all gone down, down, down. Like, um, but 
uh, I've noticed something about when I make investments. Most of the companies, I just a friend tells me, you should invest in this one. I have no idea what it is. Like the letters are like PLZT. I'm like, okay, I'll invest in PLZT, whatever it is. I, it's not a real one. Don't go invest in it. I have no idea what I'm talking about. Okay, so, but I'll make an investment. And here's what I've noticed. I don't really know anything about those companies, right? But the ones that I invest the most in, I actually become the most interested in. Like now I'm, I'm looking, I mean, I knew, I knew what Tesla was because I knew I could never buy one of those cars, um, but, but I realized I, I'm actually interested. If I'm gonna put some money here, if I'm gonna put some significant amounts of money here, I'm gonna check in on this. I never check in on my Bitcoin. <laughs> never mind. <laughs> But the reality is, and this is what God is declaring, we often think, um, no, the things I'm really passionate about, that's where I will invest. And that's true to a certain degree, but it's also true that if I will make investment, my passions and desires will follow those investments. And he, he's inviting you to invest in things that will produce eternal returns. My interests follow my investments. And maybe you've heard this, there, there are three things that don't lie. This is true with um, our lives as well, but there are three things that don't lie. Um, kids, might be four, Kim Sliwa, uh, but, but kids, drunk people, and yoga pants. Those, those three things, <laughs> so gross, don't lie, uh, right? Uh, but it's also true if you were to examine your own life, I actually think there are three things you could look at that won't lie to you. It's your money trail, your calendar, and your disciplines. They will reveal something. They will tell you something about what you actually value versus what we believe we value. I think often genuinely believe, but without some sort of brutal assessment, we often never discover where we're failing to invest and we wonder why our hearts don't follow that investment. And that's a good word, Pastor. I know. Keep going? Okay, all right, I'll keep going then. If you, if you insist. So the question is, how do I invest in things that will yield eternal benefits? And what would I do to protect, guard, and nurture those things in my life? Or you could say it this way. In what areas of my life have I settled for less when Jesus has offered me more? Because there actually are things that you should not be content with. And contentment is a big theme in the scriptures, but there's also this discontent that should exist in you and I. It actually should exist in you and I until the day we enter eternity. Like I am not satisfied with this holy discontent. If you look into Buddhism at all, um, it sort of begins with what's known as the four noble truths in Buddhism. They roughly are something like this in layman's terms. The first truth is um, that um, the suffering in the world is the problem. The world is filled with suffering and suffering is the problem. The second truth is this, that it's actually our desires that are the cause of all suffering in the world, which then leads to the third truth in Buddhism, and that is that you need to let go of your attachment to all desire in order to participate in alleviating suffering in the world. So desire is the problem. The desire is the root of suffering in the world. And you need to um, let go of your attachment to all desire in order to be part of the solution. And then the fourth one is, if you will follow the eightfold path of enlightenment, um, then you can discover how to let go of all desire or your attachment to desire. Now, 
I just want to say this out loud because the Eightfold Path is all about um, these right things. Like it's, so it's um, right views, right intentions, right speech, right action, um, and right um, livelihood. And I just want to say this because there are Alaskans in the room and it's moose season. Um, one of the things that's listed in right action is that you would kill no living thing. So a bunch of you are already out. Um, you're off of the Eightfold Path. Um, but uh, if you've killed a fly, like, kill no living thing, right, is, is part of it. And then when you get to right livelihood, here's some livelihoods you cannot have and be on the Eightfold Path. One of them is the selling of weapons. Sorry, Landon. Um, and then um, also um, uh, the selling of meat. I'm just saying, uh, those, are, those are things. All suffering in the world is the result of desires, and if you could do away with the attachment to desire, then you could eliminate suffering in the world. In other words, if you had a desire to do away with your desires, you, did you get that? Yeah, okay, good. Uh, so, now, here's the thing. From a biblical perspective, biblical understanding, desires in and of themselves are not the problem in the world. In fact, um, if you were to look at it from a biblical perspective, you could make the case that your desires are God-given, but sin distorts them. They actually came from, if you were to chase any desire, and it would be a long conversation, but we could have it. If you were to chase any desire back to its root, a desire for power or a desire for authority or a desire for influence, if you were to chase it back to its root, you could actually discover the God-given design for it. From a biblical perspective, the goal is not to do away with all desire. The goal is to allow Jesus to redeem those desires for his purposes. Here's how C.S. Lewis says it in the weight of glory. I love this. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We settle far too easily for less than what Jesus saved us for. It actually isn't desire that is the problem. It's actually unredeemed desire that is the problem. So over the next two weeks together, we're going to actually be looking at four areas in which I believe you should never be satisfied. That there should be a holy discontent in you, that you should be saying, I want more, I want more, I want more, I want to grow more, I want to develop more, I want to experience more. I actually think you were wired by God to not be satisfied fully and finally this side of eternity, and that you could pursue these things forever and actually experience more and more joy as a result. So here they are. The first one is this, worship. Here's how I would define worship. Worship is the ways in which I express my reverence for, my devotion to, and my adoration of God. Like there should never come a day where you're like, well, I feel like I've done enough worship. I can move on now to the, to the next thing. I think we often, when it comes to worship, we think about it in terms of an expression in a room like this on a Sunday, and you, and you see those people who are like, they got their hands lifted, man, they're just so much further along than me, I'm never going to catch up with them, right? I don't know how they got that, or we, we look at people who um, aren't doing anything, it appears to us, they're just standing there like, yeah, I dare you to make me clap my hands, like, 
bring it. I'll stand in the woods and do this. But I ain't raising my hands in worship, I'll tell you that much. Look like an idiot. What do you think? I am an idiot. Like, uh, but, but we sort of look around, compare ourselves to others, but worship is so much more. You know that, right? Worship is so much more than the songs that we sing or the ways that we express ourselves in this moment. But at the core, worship is really the ways in which I express my reverence for, my devotion to, and my adoration of God. I never want to settle. Like, I want to be finding new ways in each season of life to express my worship to God. The other one is relationships. Here's how I would define relationships. It's the ways in which I'm connected to others in healthy, life-giving friendship. This one I think is actually really hard for people. I think it's really hard for men in particular. I think men will frequently say, oh no, I'm good with the relationships I have. I don't need nobody, right? And yet you were actually created to continue to grow and flourish in ever-deepening friendships and relationships. To know someone and to be known by someone, it's actually the whole message of the gospel was designed to be lived out in community with one another. And you should never be satisfied with the depth of relationship that you have with others, whether it's your spouse or whether it's in friendships, but that's something that you could pursue for the rest of your life and grow in your understanding of Christ as iron sharpens iron. The third one is this growth, spiritual growth specifically. It's the way in which I'm maturing in my understanding and my practice as a Christian. Because I think I've, I meet a lot of Christians who know a lot, right? You, you've met them before, right? They can quote every verse to you. People ask me all the time, they're like, um, there's this one verse. I mean, you probably know where it is. I don't really. I'm like, nope, I have no idea. But I have my phone and I can look it up just like every phone number that I have to look up because I don't know any phone numbers anymore, right? Um, I don't know exactly where that verse is found, but like you, I know about the verse. But you, you met those people who, right, they know all the answers to the questions. And yet when you observe their life, you realize that that knowledge has not transferred into practice, into the ways that we actually live in the world. That's, that's what I would, for spiritual growth, it's the way in which I'm maturing, not just in my understanding, but also in my practice of the way of Christ. And the last one is this, participation, specifically participation in God's mission. Like, I, I never want to be satisfied because in each and every season of life, the day is going to come, it may have already come, that you don't want to hear me talk anymore right? It may have come like 15 minutes ago. I have no idea. But I know the day is going to come when it's going to become really obvious to me that this season of life is over. But that doesn't mean that the mission that God has for my life is over. And I want to continue to discover what that looks like and what that is in each and every season of life. How do I bring my gifting and my resources to join God and his mission in the world? And I want to do that until the day I die. Like, I, I should never be satisfied, right? Like, well, it's time for me to retire. I've done enough. Like those words should never come out of my mouth when it comes to joining God in the mission that he has in the world. Like the question should always be, how can I join him in this season of my life with my gifting and resources and talents? I would say that in those four areas, there should be a holy discontent in us. It's okay to not be satisfied with where you're sitting right now. And that you could pursue those areas for the rest of your life and discover more and more and more joy in your relationship with God. Just stand with us. 
it's funny, I was um, in first service and some of you should come to first service because there's more room in that one and in third, but I understand why you don't go to first. I told first service, I said, it's at eight o'clock. I make an assumption about the first service crowd that everyone in that room is a Christian because nobody else would show up at eight o'clock, right? Like, I don't even want to show up at eight o'clock. Uh, but, but I realized um, because over the years, I've had enough encounters with individuals that I would have made assumptions about. No, no, that person is clearly a follower of Jesus. That person is clearly in relationship with God. And what I don't know is what's in a person's heart. We're really good at pretending. We're really good at answering the right questions. But this may come as a shock to you. It doesn't come as a shock to me anymore. Over the years, I've actually watched pastors, as they've begun to examine their own heart, come to the conclusion that they have never surrendered their life to Jesus. And yet they have been in ministry for years and years and years. So I don't make those assumptions anymore. That in a room like this with all of us, that there are probably some in this room that you're discovering, I'm not sure I've ever surrendered my life to Jesus. I mean, I prayed some prayer at some point, but here's what I would tell you, and only you can evaluate this. I don't want you to hear any shame or condemnation. This is for you to assess in your own life. I can't do it for you. But the reality is that if you find in yourself no desire, no longing, no dissatisfaction in these areas of worship, expressing adoration to God, and this area of relationships, and this area of spiritual growth or in participating with God in his kingdom, it's worth asking yourself the question, have you surrendered to him? because that hunger should grow. It, it doesn't start way up here. Sometimes you get to watch people who are like, as soon as they meet Jesus, they're like taking off like a rocket. And then there are others who are working through all kinds of stuff and it's growing and maturing. But if you can't identify that hunger, that presence at all in your life, then it's worth asking yourself the question, have I actually surrendered my life to Jesus? And the reason there's no shame or condemnation in that question is because you're the one who can assess it and Jesus would love to reveal it to you, but we have all been in that same boat at some point or another. And what I want is real relationship, authenticity. I have no desire to show up and pretend for you week after week. If this thing isn't the real deal, I got other stuff I can be doing with my life, right? You do too. So I would encourage you to ask that question. Is there any hunger, dissatisfaction in my life in these areas of worship and relationship and growth, participation in God's mission? And if there is no hunger for those things, I would challenge you, come to Jesus. There are those of us in this room who are like, yeah, it's there, but I've ignored it for a long time. I put my priorities in other places and my interest is chasing my investments and I need to reprioritize that. Can't think of a better time than right now to invite Jesus to do that in your life, in my life. It's what I hate about preaching is I have to like write this stuff down and I'm like, oh, I should do that. <laughs> it's for me too. So Jesus, in this room, watching online, I, I know there are people in all kinds of different situations and places. And the reality is that except for your grace, except for your finished work on the cross, except for those things, I actually have no right desire apart from you. So would you bring us fresh and new to that place, that place that you describe when you describe your death, that if I am lifted up on the cross, I will draw all people to myself. Could we feel that magnetic pull to the foot of the cross and maybe we surrender to it and experience 
life that you have for each and every one of us. And may this holy discontent begin to rise up, begin to churn in your sons and your daughters. May we begin to chase after you in the way we were created to. May we begin to long for everything that you saved us for. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play. Thank you.